Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now, here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to another episode of Crushing Cashflow. With me today is a power investing duo from sunny Florida and Iowa, Mr. Warren Dresner and Ryan Webster. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. It's nice to do kind of a duo. We do a lot of one-on-ones and sometimes two or three-on-ones, but it's really fun to do kind of a, a group interview. So looking forward to this one a lot. A little bit of background, let these guys talk to it mostly. Warren's originally from Australia. He's a father of three girls, 20 plus years experience in finance insurance, 10 plus years in real estate. Ryan's in Iowa, father of two boys. It's great to share you know, the dad vibe here. 10 years building and running construction company that builds a lot of multifamily. I'm guessing that's the common connection point. But Warren, why don't we start with your background? You know, How did you come? Did you come to the US to do real estate? What was the plan there? And just tell us more about your story. So like you said, I'm from Australia originally. I actually moved around a fair bit over the years. I lived in the UK and Europe for a while. I did live in Chicago 15, 20 years ago for a couple of years. But no, I moved back to Australia with my wife at the time. My wife's from Mexico. We lived in Australia when we had the kids for about nine years. But after a while, she wanted to move back to this side of the world. So that was really the catalyst to move to Florida. I was super excited from a business point of view, though, because I love real estate. I invested in real estate in Australia, but I always knew that the US had way more opportunity. So I didn't come here for the real estate, but as soon as I got here, I was very focused on getting more of it. Come for that Miami weather, stay for the real estate, maybe, you know? Absolutely. I love the weather as well. I should have dropped that in pretty similar to the place where I grew up in Australia. So just nice sunshine, green trees, lots of water. And what brought you to the multifamily side? I kind of followed the path that I think a lot of people do. I started with single family, Yeah, realized that it's quite a bit of work. I discovered multifamily when I got to Florida. It's a big thing in the US and it's not a big thing in other parts of the world. And I first got into it as an LP. I was mm-hmm. investing passively. I saw that the returns were good. I could get great diversification geographically. And so it was really all about the cash flow, the low work involved. And then slowly over time, I realized, actually, I can get active in this and start to make more money and create that financial freedom sooner. And that's really why I jumped into the active side. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. Ryan, what's your story? How about you? Yeah. yeah, I've been in real estate in one form or another for most of my career. Like you said, started in the construction side and was really looking to get outside of the market that I live and kind of realized that multifamily was probably the best asset to branch out and look into acquiring something, you know, well outside of where I live and managing from afar. Really cool. So why multifamily for you? Is that just kind of the way, was it part of the family or is it something you kind of discovered was lucrative and got into later on? Yeah. You know, started in the construction, I do a ton of single family, but as far as the investment goes and generating cash flow, you know, multifamily is an asset that's always going to be in demand. People are always going to be housing. You know, there's a shortage of housing and it's more expensive to replace that every year. So from that perspective, financially, multifamily made a lot of sense to me. 
Really cool. So how the heck did you guys meet? One of you is in Iowa, one's in Florida, obviously have multifamily in common. How did you meet each other? So we met through one of those mentorship groups. I know I can speak for myself. When I was trying to get more involved, I felt like I had a couple of choices. I could start small, buy a duplex, then try and get a sixplex, 20plex, 30plex and grow that way. Or the alternative was to find a mentorship group which can get you further, faster. And so I did a bit of research, talked to a bunch of the groups that are out there, and I ended up landing on one that I really liked. I thought they had a great culture. Everyone I talked to from the group was really helpful, supportive. It seemed like a good peer group to surround myself with, which was like part of the biggest motivation. So I joined that group, and I think I probably joined maybe two, three months after Ryan had joined as well. Very cool. So how did you know it was a fit? I mean, there's so many choices and partners that work out there. Some lots of don't work out. How did you guys know it was going to work for you guys? You want to have a crack at it? Yeah, I think when I first talked to Warren, you know, he reached out, got my number from someone else in the group, and he was looking at a deal in Florida. And we happened to be, you know, both looking at deals in Florida and got to talking and found out that, you know, we really had a similar idea of what made a good investment, how to generate solid risk adjusted returns, what was a good market. So we started looking at deals together and then started talking more about, you know, our experience as investors and, you know, growing the business and found out that we had uh, alignment in, you know, what we wanted to build in that, you know, we wanted to build a very professional operation that focused on not only providing quality investments, but providing a quality investor experience and really mm-hmm. giving that customer service component back and you know helping investors achieve their investment goals. So you guys kind of aligned on your objectives and your criteria. It sounds like a little bit of your values as well. I mean, do you have complementary skill sets or do you guys kind of have some overlap between the two of you? I'm curious. I think it's probably a combination. I mean, we've clearly got some complementary skills. Ryan's got the construction background, which mm-hmm. I don't have at all. And I think that's hugely valuable. But I think we're both pretty driven by the numbers. We're both pretty strong at underwriting and analyzing markets and deals. But that kind of becomes a strength of ours because everything we look at, we get four eyes on. So yeah. I might look at something and show Ryan, he might look at something and show me. And we just, we bring different perspectives and checks and balances, which I think is really helpful as well. Yeah, I can relate to that. I found a similar approach. I always feel like you're always going to miss something the other one may see when it comes to numbers. So many different levers that you guys know well. That's really cool. So let's talk about your first deal. I mean, I think it's quite uncommon to land a class A 20 plus million dollar property using institutional money. How the heck did you pull that off? So a bit of luck, (laughs) a bit of perseverance, I think. I mean, we were probably underwriting deals nine months, 12 months before we found that one. So it wasn't an overnight success by any means. We would have looked at hundreds of deals before that one. You know, Ryan talked about our philosophy of investment, the kind of deals we liked, the kind of markets we liked. We knew that if we were to find a deal that fit that criteria, it was going to be a $20, $30 million deal. So very early on, we knew we had to find a solution to be able to raise money to take down one of those deals. We'd need to find a way of raising $10 million. Yeah, Mm -hmm. We knew that we couldn't raise $10 million from limited partners in $50,000, $100,000 chunks. Mm -hmm. We consciously tried to build relationships with institutions very early on in the process. We had multiple discussions with equity brokers, with some of these companies directly. We were underwriting deals, showing them the deals before we had them, the offers made, before anything was accepted. So we had consciously built that relationship with the institutional 
providers. And I think that was essential. Like that was really important. It's very hard to find a deal and then go out and decide to try and find institutional equity. Yeah. You you, yeah. Once you're under a timeline, all bets are off, right? So there's got to be a lot of people listening, wondering what's my first step to go find institutions to work with. How did you guys go about that? Yeah. You know, a good capital markets broker goes a long way. You know, ideally you got to remember that you're going to be their partner in the deal and they're going to be yours and you're in it, you know, for the duration. So having someone that has a relationship with these parties already helps a lot instead of going into it completely blind. And like you said, once you're under contract, you're on the clock. And if your closing relies on this party to bring a check to the closing table, you want to make sure that that's going to happen. It's all teamwork, right? Like everyone talks about multifamily being a team sport and our broker, whether it's mortgage broker or equity broker, is an essential team member. And we pay them. They take a cut of what they yeah, do. But of course, they do. It's really <laughs> valuable. It's really worth it. So you guys, this is your first deal together. You know, How did you overcome the experience hurdle with the institutions and the lender and all that? How did you go about that? Yeah. I mean, I've had some experience you know, working with you know, the lender side of the construction for a number of years. So that wasn't a big hurdle to jump. But like Warren said, we started very proactively working with you know, the institutional equity out there. And building a relationship, understanding their due diligence and approval process, what their investment committee was looking for, and more importantly, making sure that our investment and the product type that we're buying aligned with you know the definitions of their investment for their capital. And that's a big part of having success with the institutions is making sure that you're buying a product that they want to invest in. Absolutely. What's big about what you guys did, and I think one of the big reasons you're successful is you knew exactly what you wanted. It wasn't like you started looking at class C and B and all of a sudden, oh, I stumbled on this really nice $26 million property. Let's go after it. You'd planted the seeds very intentionally to have that institutional support backed up. And if you hadn't done that, I mean, I don't know how you get there, right? Totally. I think being intentional about it is important and then being disciplined. So even today, I mean, we'll look at B-class deals the oldest one we own is 1986, but we often say we don't really want to go older than 1990 and we're disciplined about it. So if a deal comes into our inbox and it's 1985, we don't get curious and waste an hour or two looking at it. We just say that does not fit within the criteria. Let's move on. So I think the answer is obvious why you don't like older properties, but why focus on class A's when historically they may have lower returns, maybe less risk or so, but why class A? Because a lot of, I say most people I talk to, especially on this show or at conferences or BNC class value add, why class A for you guys? Yeah, I like, you know, one, just the product in general, there's less repair and maintenance. We have better, (laughs) you know, operating budget to work with, but it's a newer property that they're located in newer neighborhoods, nicer neighborhoods. And that comes with you know, a demographic that helps support the business plan that has, you know, incomes and wages that are going to support rent growth in and of themselves. You're not fighting collection issues. And I think, you know, COVID showed that this kind of workforce housing BC class, there's exposure there. You know, the tenants in those properties, the incomes are getting, you know, eroded by inflation today as people lose jobs through COVID and those properties got slammed with collection issues for you know, six to eight months at the onset of COVID. We didn't see that issue at our properties due to a different demographic. And it's you know a lower risk profile, but that doesn't mean that you can't generate little higher returns. It doesn't mean there's not a value-add component to it. That first property was a 2016 built property, but we're still renovating interiors. A lot of people don't realize that you know, just because it's brand new doesn't mean that it can't be improved. And that property in particular we ended up with was you know nice 2016 built, great exteriors, well amenitized property. 
but the developer got really cheap on the interior. So the kitchens, yeah. you know, they look 20 years old. They were terrible. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Which, and I mean, they were just so bad, but it left us something to improve on. So there was a value add component there and we were able to, you know, renovate units and move rents up with the competitors. A great point. I mean, we own a newer, I mean, I'd say newer, like late 2000s, early 2010 property. And a lot of this builder grade material yeah. leaves a lot to be desired. And if you're in a market like Sarasota, where you've got really premium high-end stuff going in, you have easily room to grow with renovating the interior. So it's a great point. It doesn't always have to be a 1970s, 1980s, you know, lead paint on the walls to go renovate. It can be, you know, more polishing and finishing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something to be said that there's class A and there's class A and there's class AA and A plus. There's a huge spectrum. And you know, we don't play, you know, a lot in the in the luxury class A. You know, we really like this AA minus product where there's still a delta to the rent ceiling and some of the premium product in the area, but we get the opportunity to sit in a nice quality, well-built asset with, you know, no deferred maintenance in a nice neighborhood. Awesome. So speaking of those nice neighborhoods, I'm a big fan of Sarasota. I'd love to live there someday. In fact, we'd love to and plan on it. How did you guys select that market? I mean, it's, it's wildly competitive. You know, obviously the weather is a main attraction, but why Sarasota? Why the general Florida Gulf Coast area? We definitely start with the macro view. We start with the market and the sub-market comes next and the property comes later. So we love Florida because there is so much in migration. It's business friendly. It's landlord friendly. <laughs> <laughs> woof, woof. Yeah, exactly. He agrees. So I'm on the ground in Florida as well. That was a good reason why we yeah. focused on Florida. It's easy to travel and see the brokers and see the properties. <laughs> really, our focus was Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville area, and then the surrounds. I mean, those are the big cities. Those are the ones with all the jobs. They've got great growth. But what we were seeing was there was growth beyond just the metro area. Tampa is great, but the south side where Sarasota and Bradenton are, we saw tremendous growth. And we were looking all over, you know, central Florida. It just so happened that that one happened to be in Sarasota, but it ticked all the boxes. Yeah, I love it. So when you guys entered the market, it's probably seemed competitive. And in 2022, it seems even more competitive. What are your thoughts and what are you seeing in terms of competition? Is it, you know, how are you overcoming that today? <laughs> it's an easy one to answer now. Yeah, it's incredibly competitive at the moment. But you're right. You know, anytime in the market, you think, wow, it's really competitive at the moment. And then looking back six months, you think, wow, it was so easy six months ago. It's competitive now. <laughs> yep, I know. I feel yeah. like though, the last, I mean, it's April 2022. The last two, three months has gotten incredibly competitive again. And I think the difference that we're finding is that's fine. There's a lot of inflation. It's a great time to be owning cash flowing assets. Rents are probably going to keep increasing in some of these places. They're all great things. But the difference now is that the cost of debt is increasing. Yes. That's something new that we didn't see in the last two years. In fact, it was probably the opposite. Debt was getting cheaper and cheaper. So that's something we're struggling with at the moment. Like sellers are looking for higher prices. Brokers are pushing and pushing, but our cost of capital is going up and we're struggling to compete now. And I think I'm hoping that something's going to give in the next couple of months. It's going to stabilize. Maybe sellers will back off a little. There's still a lot of uncertainty with interest rates. So yeah, we need to see what the Fed does. And hopefully that's going to bring some more certainty and maybe some more sanity to the market. 
And you got way ahead of my next question, which was, my opinion is, I don't think that reality has sunk in yet, right? We're underwriting, just like you guys are every day, making offers. And it doesn't seem like those, you know, maybe one, 2% jumps in, you know, let's say bridge debt have really factored into pricing just yet. Like when you underwrite drastic effect on your returns, on your cash, on cash, all the above, doesn't seem like it's quite hit reality just yet, but I feel like the tide will turn. What do you guys think? Yeah, something's going to have to give. You know, spreads will either have to come in, and I know you know the debt funds and the banks, they're widening spreads, trying to cover their interest as we all try to guess what the Fed's going to do. So I think once we get that that certainty, you know, spreads may come in a little bit, but you know, we've seen the past 12, 24 months of just this very aggressive cap rate compression. You know, I think that's going to have to level out a little bit, and it should. I mean, we have deals that you know we're looking at purchasing and you look what they were you know purchased for 3 years ago if we see you know 5% 7% off of you know what the brokers are saying is guidance the sellers are still hitting it out of the park here but i think we're going to have to see that movement to get things to pencil and get the cash flow yield back we're also seeing a flood of deals hit the market i don't know if you've seen that as well andrew but it seems yeah. like a lot of these brokers are just trying to get everything out quickly before yeah. thing changes. Yeah. Hopefully no. that's an indicator. Absolutely. No, I was, I was just going to mention something similar. There is an increase in deal flow, which in one side is a good thing. Inventory is building up, but it's almost like the gold rush is they feel like it's coming to an end. Like, hey, these for the prices being a certain percentage and our commissions being a percent of sale, let's cash in. You know, where yeah. the tide could very well turn to five or 10% reduction in, you know, let's say a month, couple months time. Absolutely. So as we kind of round in on you know your your final approach here, when you guys underwrite a deal, what, what's your process look like? What are you looking for? You want to answer? Yeah, I can. Again, like Warren said, we do start you know with the market and narrow down to you know the best location we can find that market. But once we get down to the asset, you know we're really looking at you know cash flow and rents and rent growth and what is this product type? Where does it compare to the competitors? Is there room to move rent? And then back into you know wages and income and demographics and make sure that that's yeah. going to support the new rent levels, especially given you know this inflationary environment where the cost of living is going up and rents are going up. We want to make sure that you know wages never keep pace with inflation. We want to make sure that they're going to support our pro forma rent numbers. And then lately, it's been an exercise of you know find the best debt product of the day. Name of the game right now, right? Yeah. And you know, we did a lot of bridge debt in the last 12 months and we bought very aggressive interest rate caps. We're in the money now because we knew at some point rates would have to yeah. come up, but you can't really afford interest rate caps anymore. We quoted one, you know, last week and you know, it was three and a half million dollar cap. That's a lot of dollars just to drop into your sources and uses. So we're we're looking for, you know, bank loans and fixed rate bridge loans and trying to yeah. find some some other alternatives where you don't have to underwrite month over month to the forward curve. You're not alone there, brother. I can tell you. So, you know, in terms of class A, what are your investors looking for in terms of returns? There's obviously a different asset class than some of these older, you know, workforce housings. Yeah. Cash on cash tends to be lower. So, you know, a lot of investors were spoiled, I guess. 2016 to 2018 and yes. getting 10% cash on cash and 16 to 20% IRR. We cannot achieve that with an A-class property. It's a lower risk profile, so it should be risk-adjusted returns. Yeah. Typically, we see, I guess, between 6 and 8% cash on cash. We'll still get to a 15 IRR often, but it might be a range of, say, 13 to 16. Yeah. 
rather than high teens and into the 20s. That's what we're underwriting to, and that's a projection. I mean, if things continue to perform as they did in 2021 with rents rising 30% in some markets, we'll probably outperform those numbers. But that's typically how we're structuring a deal and what the expectations are at the outset. That's perfect. And I'll be honest, I mean, this day and age, class B and class C, you're not seeing a whole lot better than that. And if you're conservative with your underwriting in any way, which I know conservative is kind of dead at this point, but. (laughs) And the other thing is, what are the alternatives to invest in? So if you invest in the stock market or some sort of fixed rate debt, you're not getting those returns anyway. These are still great returns that investors can get by investing in a real asset. So I think it's a great proposition for investors either way. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys on the show. I love what you guys are doing. Keep doing, keep swinging away. For those who are listening, want to get in contact with the both of you, what's the best way? Best way would be to head to our website. It's equityyieldgroup.com. From there, you can contact us. You can sign up to our newsletter or our investor list, but that would be the easiest way. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure having both of you. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.